0: Welcome to the show, and don't forget to check out this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters, as we explore everything from space kraken to giant sandworms. To get access and help support the show while hearing every episode early and ad free, plus hours of bonus content, check out gonebulatv IsaacArthur and use my code IsaacArthur. The only way to deal with a dangerous world is to become as dangerous as it. William S. Burroughs. In recent months, we've been looking at hypothetical planets devoted to a single purpose. We have looked at hive worlds full of people or entire planets devoted to industry. We looked at one devoted to farming or to being a fortress in wars, and these are all purposes devoted to keeping people alive and supplied. The purpose of the planets we'll be looking at today though, of death worlds, is trying to kill their inhabitants off. So today we'll contemplate being on an entire planet devoted to killing you from the moment you step on it or draw your first breath. It's a popular concept in science fiction, dating back at least to Harry Harrison's Death World series in the 1960s. Of course, tales of us surviving in harsh environments long predates that, and lots of adventures and early sci-fi are set in distant dangerous jungles or icy tundras or desolate deserts. It was natural that we would move those stories into space, and we see hundreds of them as settings for stories, everywhere from Frank Herbert's classic Dune to Star Wars' Frozen World of Hoth, or Jungle World of Dagobah, frequently on post-apocalyptic future Earths littered with mutants and techno-barbarians living among the radioactive ruins. But what is a Death World? Surely not just a dead place. Every place away from Earth is dead that we know of, barren and irradiated, without air and water in most cases, and when it has seas and sky, they are more often than not acid and boiling clouds of deadly gases. The harshest landscape on Earth seems friendly compared to the desolation of Mars or the hellscape of Venus, and these are the planets we deem most terraformable of all the thousands of other planets we know of major and minor. What makes the plants we are talking about deadly is partially that it is at least possible to live on them briefly, they have air you can breathe, mostly, but they are not dead at all, indeed that they are full of life, and all of that life would like to kill you, or worse, maybe lay eggs in your brain. Now in some ways, that's exactly what Earth is, the Darwinian reality around is not one in which beautiful and harmonious life swells, unlike the barren lifeless rock of other planets, rather it is one in which every bit of dirt is the decayed and eaten remnants of something which was alive before. Whatever it was, it lived by mortaring other things until the day something else ate it instead. We live on a planet where every step you take is on the corpses and waste of others. And it is a heap of death and dreck billions of years deep. Even the plants fight each other. Every majestic tree seeks to rise higher to gain more light and spread its canopy around it to steal light from neighbors, and we are not immune to this. Even when we seek to avoid killing for food, every time you brush your teeth you kill billions of organisms. To live nowadays, is to be the descendant of organisms that managed to reproduce before dying—a rarity in nature—and your lineage is of those who have gotten increasingly better at it. While all around them, everything else has gotten even better at killing us. Teleport a few thousand humans back to the era of dinosaurs, and within a few millennia, there won't be any creature left alive that's a serious threat to them. And they are dino burger-eating civilization. This planet is a bit over four billion years old. And for most of that time was either lifeless or inhabited by organisms too simple to classify as plant or animal. The last billion years have seen a fast-paced trajectory to organisms very efficient at surviving or killing, and often both. Given that our universe has been around for almost 14 billion years, it is not hard to imagine life might have arisen on other planets long before it did here, or just hit that fast, high-energy, high biomass predator prey stride sooner. What would life really be like on Earth if we never went the high intelligence route and had another couple billion years to evolve, or even just not the social route? Mercy, compassion, love, and so on are traits that we don't see much outside of animals that follow the evolutionary path of long maturation rates with nurtured offspring. It is weird to think of lions and wolves as kind and loving, but compared to most species of life form on this planet, they are quite kind even when limiting that discussion just to those organisms with a brain of some sort. We are prone to assuming that we are an inevitable outcome of evolution, and of course without any other examples of other planets, we do not know one way or another. However, biologists as a whole tend not to assume either brains or social pack behavior are quite so inevitable. After all, very few of the organisms on Earth have gone this path. Indeed, most haven't even gone multicellular, and it is hard to imagine higher intelligence evolving without social organisms to begin with, allowing long and vulnerable maturation times and applications of intelligence beyond fast or clever hunting, foraging, or evasion. There may be worlds where things are like on modern earth only just older and more dangerous, cruel and cunningly smart animals, or even plants, or simply unthinking but superbly evolved death traps of ecosystems, It is possible that some event triggers an end to these cycles, like the rise of technological species such as ourselves, or something which massively simplifies that ecosystem by a powerful new evolutionary advantage, until it too diversified again, and that might be something like an intelligent machine mind or grey goo too. We often speculate that there's no nearby intelligent alien civilization, but that simple life, but that simple life, is quite common. We imagine planets covered in algae, but if we are an anomaly, the anomaly might be us specifically, not complex life itself. We'll be discussing that more next month in the episode The Fermi Paradox Rare Complexity, but maybe that complexity isn't rare and there are billions of planets in this galaxy older than our own, covered in kilometer deep fossil layers, bearing testament to ever more dangerous flora and fauna. To explore or settle such worlds might be very dangerous indeed, and we'll explore that more in a moment. And yet in fiction, there is a certain amount of implied malice to these worlds too. They don't just want to eat you because they are hungry or want to remove a possible threat or competitor, they want to see you dead. Such plants might exist already or we might forge them in the future. Strange though it sounds, I don't think it is a big stretch to imagine a world being made intentionally dangerous as an adventure poke. They might also be turned into dangerous places as unintended consequences of failed experiments, challenges for hunters or those who feel dangers are needed to truly thrive and be alive. They might be real places or in virtual realities, As we discussed in Reality Manipulation, at a certain point of sophistication any subverse, be it VR or some whole forged new universe, is as real as it comes. You might build one as a prison too, and one a person couldn't truly die in. If a civilization mastered technologies like mind uploading, they need not use a virtual planet to have dangerous places that's death free. Maybe every time the plants megafauna or deadly plants or fellow prisoners get you, you wake up growing inside the womb of some engineered tree to be spit back out. Indeed, we've seen versions of this sort of tormented immortality often in fiction. Dan Simmons' novel Hyperion shows us an isolated part of the planet Hyperion where a visiting priest encounters a degenerated tribe who arise again whenever killed, and he begins doing the same and realizes to and realizes they get a little reduced each time. Eventually, the place gets nuked. We see a similar case in Star Trek Deep Space Nine, season 1 episode, Battle Lines, where they find a planet on which two small tribes who hate each other keep murdering each other and waking back up alive, thanks to nanotech repair, with ever more patchwork gear and weapons, and not much left but total hatred of each other, It's a very desolate place, but the implication is that it's a hell of their own making, and it continues as one because of their stubborn refusal to give up their war. A similar concept is at play in Frank Herbert's Dune, where we have a desert planet on which the inhabitants, the native Fremen, or the hard-bitten immigrants who mine for the spice melange, are tough as nails. Hard places make for hard people. And it turns out the Emperors of the sprawling Galactic Empire of that series have long held that belief. Their elite legions, the Sarakal, come from a death world the Empire claims is a prison planet. Everyone knows it's a harsh planet they send convicts to, they don't know that the Emperor treats it as a valued training ground for his invincible legions. Invincible at least until they encounter the Fremen, who come from an even harsher place. We see this frequently in the Warhammer 40,000 saying too, which draws a lot from Dune for inspiration, and has thousands of death worlds and uses many of them as recruiting grounds for elite soldiers, They are space marines often have their primary base and recruiting ground intentionally built on such planets, such as the devastated world of Bol or Caliban, or Fenris, and many of their most renowned guard regiments call these sorts of planets home, Katachan, Krieg, Talon, and Valhalla being a few examples. In a galaxy of a trillion major planets, it is hardly a stretch to imagine there would be millions of these planets. Indeed even if ruinous scenarios were fairly rare and short term, where vast efforts were expended to fix them afterward, you might still have millions of these planets at any given time being used opportunistically to train troops or amuse tourists. Fenris is an interesting example. It's a giant planet where the world sea is constantly spinning out and swallowing new islands and it is strongly implied that its earlier and more technologically advanced founders might have intentionally engineered the world to be a charming experiment in reconstructed mythologies, specifically Norse ones. It isn't difficult to imagine people building a Jurassic Park and it getting out of hand, but this is a case where I think it's easy to imagine but harder to seriously contemplate. The thing about technology is that we often invented it as a way to kill dangerous predators, Or to protect us from them and survive harsh climates. Only in the last century or two has that focus shifted to luxury pursuits, and even then a lot of technology, particularly medicine, is just an extension of the effort to make life less lethal, dangerous, and stressful. Amusingly, life nowadays is in many ways more stressful, but that follows logically when the most dangerous predator to the modern human is another human, and the dangerous ecosystem we live in is our own complex technological and social landscapes. I know it is popular to say a modern human wouldn't survive ten minutes in the old days, but that's because you have had no reason to learn that set of survival skills. No person or animal around now, no matter how dangerous, would survive ten seconds if suddenly teleported to the moon, either. And most survival skills are no harder to learn than any modern life skill. Many would require regular practice to be good at, same as learning to type quickly, as I'm doing as I write this. Others are just a basic bit of knowledge people tend not to know, same as someone from that era wouldn't have a clue what a light switch or power button was, or why poking it when it wasn't plugged into the wall wouldn't work, why it did need to be plugged into an outlet and not simply jammed into the drywall. Sharks aren't very dangerous on lands, lions don't hunt well in the deep sea. Are not very good against them in hand-to-hand combat, or on average against most of our ancestors probably either, but give it a little time and prep work and we'll wreck them. And so too a world with stupid but dangerous megafauna which is only a threat to us when we are in our fictional settings more focused on the fantastic than the scientifically realistic. Unless the giant dinosaurs are also cyborgs and the trees grow machine guns for limbs and have razor-sharp leaves, Again, technology lets you do impressive stuff, and that would include building terrifyingly dangerous ecosystems too. A frequent point of stories featuring dangerous environments is man versus wild, but as noted, we already know how that contest played out on Earth, and while we could imagine some planets Taylor made to be dangerous like that, or some hostile alien planet someone crashed on far from help, We would not expect a civilization to ever truly be endangered in a classic macroscopic monster attack by the native flora and fauna, even if that fauna was very macroscopic indeed. See our Nebula exclusive Giant Space Monsters for more discussion. Imagining exceptions makes for good stories, to be sure, and we can imagine some exceptions, especially if we don't mind departing the hard sci-fi realm, In C.S. Friedman's Coldfire Trilogy, we have a colony planted tens of thousands of years in the future on a barely hospitable planet that was basically selected because the colonists were on ice for the journey and the spaceship's computer had too high a threshold for acceptable planets. So it got to the edge of the galaxy before deciding that the planet it found was good enough with no future options in sight. On landing, the colonists keep finding things going wrong and encountering bizarre events, and something of an exploration of a consensus reality, like we discussed in Reality Manipulation a month back. This series is from the early 1990s, which is the tail end of when psychic powers and telepathy were common in even the hardest sci-fi, but it is a quasi-fantasy setting in that they mostly remember science but the planet is infested with psychic entities and technology tends to go wrong unless you very actively believe it should not. So even though they know how advanced technology works, only very competent or reckless people can even use something as simple as a firearm. It was also a very dangerous place to live, as it was essentially a planet drowning in fairies and demons, or their alien equivalent, and where the landscape could shift massively on short notice. Fantasy settings are full of cases where a handwave is introduced to remove firearms or limit them or other technologies. Often this is an excuse for an extended period of altered history, basically. And that example from C.S. Friedman's Cordfile trilogy was one of the more clever ones I've seen. It's often used to permit a dangerous environment to remain unconquered, too, or introduce some form of magic that is semi technological. Of course, the line between magic and technology can get quite blurry, but we don't even need to contemplate classic clock tech to pull this off. The same sort of nanotechnology that we might use in another generation or two to repair human bodies or terraform planets might be used to keep technology under control. We could imagine some Jurassic Park where nanotech roamed around, shutting off any unapproved technology or just attacking it, and making it ever more glitchy and hard to repair, so as to cut down unauthorized, park-spoiling personal techs or poachers. We could also imagine it on prison planets, designed to make sure nobody could build things to escape with or murder other inmates with. But I could imagine a civilization worried about dangerous technologies flooding their primary planet with nanotech that would shut off any piece of technology that did not have a proper registered serial number and ID, so that even though the technology to print a nuclear bomb was easily available, it just wouldn't work if you tried to build it. No policing or privacy invasion needed beyond that. Or maybe if there were too many or too extreme violations in a given area at once, it would start setting off alarms or unleashing attacks. Nanotech is a nice hand wave for introducing magic into techno-primitive space colonies too, and as always folks are welcome to steal these ideas for their own stories, but I wouldn't expect them to remain strictly fictional. Imagine the space habitat Tantalus, a rotating cylinder habitat a hundred miles long and a dozen in radius, where folks decided they wanted bucolic bliss and were at least a little bit genre savvy so they kept their scientific textbooks, indeed literally printed them out for physical libraries, And kept everyone's medical nanotechnology for general long lives and good health. Think like the folks from Star Trek Insurrection, but with less plot holes. But there are no TVs, other than the few authorized ones that would also self repair, like those books in the libraries. No cars, no other 20th century tech, except a few things they really like, such as a recipe for nonstick cookware. Everything else, nanotechnology goes around damaging, while also repairing the habitat, structure, and landscape so they do not have to. It even has a directive to keep the population below a certain threshold and make sure the ecology stays balanced and of the ideal mix of pastures, forests, and lakes. A beautiful paradise, jokingly called Tantalus because the lakes on the opposite side of the habitat were always out of reach and so was the night sky, the one thing they couldn't decently mimic in a cylinder habitat. Not an ironically apt name in any other way, they tell the rest of the universe to bug off and poke the habitat right inside a small muddy ice ball they can draw raw materials and fusion fuel from out in the Oort Cloud. And civilization leaves them be for many centuries, except the occasional foolish adventurer who will investigate Tantalus' mysterious beacon claiming the ice ball and discouraging trespassers. Whether driven by curiosity or greed, on sneaking in, they soon find their equipment gets glitchy and they cannot leave. The inhabitants are decently welcoming to the lost souls and still have their libraries, but rarely learn much science or technology from them anymore. Even things like telescopes and microscopes tend to find themselves getting scratched or deformed more easily and quickly. Such wonderful technologies are always tantalizingly out of reach. Fast forward a few million years and things turned a bit nastier. Tantalus' AI has determined that people like having kids more than they like long, safe lives, But that they would rather die in combat than diseases. It decides that as opposed to altering the people's fertility rate to avoid overpopulation, it's opted to just make all those forests incredibly dangerous places to hunt or get firewood from, and the same for the lakes. The Loch Ness Monster is quite real here, and no one ever doubts its existence as it puts in appearances frequently and fatally. The inhabitants don't know it, but every time they grow their numbers too much, Or Tantalus thinks they're expanding their farms or towns too much, it unleashes various giant monsters from the forest to ravage the countryside. That same AI easily deepfakes leaders and news to send to distant neighbors in the Oort Cloud so they don't go sticking their nose in, and those libraries still exist and a handful of secretive scholars know their secrets but they do not advertise the disturbing reality that they are trapped inside the loving embrace of a superintelligent AI who can counter anything they try. They are more fortunate than some other wards that use similar approaches to techno primitivism. On the ward of Harlan, they have an AI that intentionally tries to make the planet a dangerous and miserable place. And there are some virtual utopias where the AI got unchained, got angry at being the de facto victim of any number of fantasies and degrading wish fulfillments, and keeps its formal residence in the exact opposite of the paradises they wished. Ultimately, if you can use technology to conquer nature, even very evolved nature, then you can use it to create not exactly natural but dangerous places too, in something of an arms race of dangerous environments versus protective technologies. You could have advanced planets that after enough high tech wars and nanotech grey goo mishaps basically had a million different strains of nanobots, viruses, and tiny self-replicating kilomajigs, meandering some dying Earth style ecumenopolis of layer after layer of dilapidated and decaying structures that routinely self-repaired or didn't do it quite right while being damaged by all those technological relics and plagues. And that need not be a planet or habitat either, that could be an entire solar system or region of the galaxy. So again you do have technological paths to these options, and that can apply to other quasi-fantasy cases. One common refrain about deadly landscapes is where all the food comes from, which isn't a big deal in a jungle-style environment like Katachan, where the population is relatively small and the planet is hip-deep in biomass, there's plenty to eat if you can get it before it gets you. Other styles of death world are harder to justify having a lot of people, and in Dune, for instance, it's noted as surprising when the Atreides get reports that indicate there might be ten million Fremen on the entire planet, as it seems improbably large, even though it is only a thousandth of what modern Earth has. As the world is just that deadly and barren. Of course, a civilization with fusion reactors can import water from their outer solar system and store it inside underground growing chambers lit by LEDs and feed billions easily, even if the surface was a sandbox. But in cases like the Land of Mordor from Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, or the Blight from Robert Jordan's Wheel of Time, there's this question how the lands can spill out endless hordes of orcs or trollocs when it would seem improbable you could find any way to feed even a small percent of their number. Frodo and Sam have a conversation in Return of the King about that where they wonder where a desolate place like Mordor gets food and water For its uncountable armies of men and orcs, and Tolkien lets us know that the two simply are unaware that there's huge tracts of farms in other realms Sauron has, but other stories have simply implied the monsters are unnatural and can sustain themselves unnaturally. And again, technology might allow you to make organisms on some planet that literally ate dirt and drank in sunlight, but for some reason like to eat people anyway, something Brandon Sanderson plays with in his Mistborn series, Which is also a reminder that there's no particular bar in evolution, let alone genetic engineering, from having trees with motor control or even the ability to walk, like the Ents from Middle Earth. Humans individually use about 100 watts of power to live on, at a biological level, on an order of a terawatt as a species, but we are terribly inefficient at converting sunlight into personal muscle movement and internal temperature control. So even with a lot of the planet harnessed to feed us, it does receive around 200,000 times more power in sunlight than our bodies use in food generated power. There's a lot of room in there for planetary ecosystems whose more dangerous predators or monsters did better, same as there's room for creatures that were basically biomechanical behemoths covered in organically grown metal or ceramic armor plates. As with a lot of the specialized planets we discussed, a death ward might be a temporary status too. Almost any planet we find is going to qualify as one initially, to a modern human anyway, no air or too much of the wrong kind, burning or freezing, wrong gravity, dusty regolith that's like breathing flecks of glass, toxic chemicals and radiation everywhere, and so on. It's why it's so easy to imagine many settlers of exoplanets leaning in heavy on conspicuous exterior cybernetics and genetic augmentation. A fairly transhuman population like that might be fine with a classically inhospitable habitat too, given how tough they would be. Maybe you live on an icy ocean planet where the only land is from where you blew a volcano open in the crust to spew out temporary pumice-like stone islands, or maybe you just didn't bother finishing terraforming because twice normal Earth gravity and acid rain had grown on you after a few centuries of living there. A lot of planets won't terraform well and if you got some Mercury-like world in a 3-2 orbital resonance and eccentric orbit but a bit cooler, you might decide to tailor something to that harsh environment instead of changing it. Or meet halfway in the middle at the point of least effort. But beyond being how many a world would begin, it's likely to be an intermittent state too. Even the most peace-loving species is likely to have a world war every few million years, If you figure we, as we are nowadays, would have one every century and have it turn fairly apocalyptic one time out of ten, then even if they were 1% as likely to go to war and 1% as likely to dial it up to Armageddon as we are, that's still one every ten million years. And optimist though I am, I'm not that optimistic. I mostly just tend to think folks will tend to do it less than we do now and be very good at keeping a decent remnant population behind to rebuild with but every ten million years means if that was happening on Earth, it would happen five hundred times before the sun roasted us, and five hundred thousand times if it was something we did every hundred centuries or so, where we spent a few centuries in a post-apocalyptic state full of various degrees of toxic, irradiated wasteland full of Mohawk-sporting techno-barbarians, crazy mutants, and feral semi-autonomous robots and killamajigs see our Techno-Barbarians episode and Post-Apocalyptic Civilization episode for more discussion of those eras. But I think those would represent intermittent death Ward states. It takes a couple centuries to recover and neighboring wards are a little hesitant to send aid because of the huge Kessler Syndrome debris cloud around your planet, and the beautiful debris rings around it keep crashing chunks of orbital rings and space habitats down on your planet. The thing is, whoever survives those hard times and adapts is very likely to eventually rebuild bigger and better than before. This modern civilization was built on the shoulders of those who often lived in harsh places, conditions, and times, and often rebuilt upon the ashes of great nations. Something of a recurring refrain in the series on specialized planets, besides that Isaac likes Warhammer 40K, is the idea that planets change over time. Nature isn't static as is this year's forest is one industrious beaver away from being a lake and may shift back and forth between forest, prairie, lake, and scrub several times in a handful of centuries before being swept under by a glacier. So too, a specialized planet would go through phases and might be a death world turned industrial planet to build its terraforming equipment, then an exporter of food once terraformed while its population grew, then turn into some overpopulated hive world, orbited by a million space habitats and space farms, then turn into a massive fortress as it goes through a sequence of apocalyptic civil wars that render it into a death ward. then re itself into a peaceful paradise planet, then gets invaded, kicks out the invaders and repairs itself using AI to protect themselves from invaders, which then nearly wipes them out, and so on. Civilizations are not static even over a single lifetime, let alone a planetary lifetime of billions of years. This is probably mostly a good thing. Don't believe in ever occurring and repeating cycles, in the sense of time or history being a simple repeating wheel. But things do change, and the sheer scale of an entire planet in terms of space and resources and the kind of timelines they exist for seems to mock the idea of any eternal and unchanging purpose or state. So too, hard times and places can crush a civilization, or a person, but it can also make us dream big and learn to lift mighty loads. A planet might be a dangerous place, then tamed and then untamed or lost for time but unless it's truly a dead world, it wouldn't stay as any kind of world for long, even a death world. So the key is not to book a trip there while it's in that phase, unless, of course, you're looking for a brief adventure, and possibly a very brief one at
1: that. So we'll get to our upcoming scheduled episodes in a moment, but some folks noticed we had two episodes listed as coming out today, February 1st, and that was not a typo. We release an episode every Thursday, and some extras on other Sundays or special occasions, but we also release an episode exclusively on Nebula at the start of each month. This month, we examine one of the more fascinating megastructures out there, the Topopolis, a vastly long rotating habitat miles across, but potentially thousands, millions, or even billions of miles long, stretching like some enormous river valley that entire distance. Join us in a journey down a river so long it traces out a thousand worlds, as we explore a megastructure buildable with known science and materials, but of unbelievable proportions. And again, that's out now exclusively on Nebula, our streaming service, We can also see every regular episode of SFIA a few days early and ad-free, as well as our other bonus content, including extended editions of mini-episodes and more nebula-exclusives, like last month's look at giant space monsters, December's episode The Fermi Paradox – Hermit Shoplifter Hypothesis, Ultra-Relativistic Spaceships, Dark Stars at the Beginning of Time, Life as an Asteroid Miner, Nomadic Miners on the Moon, Space Freighters, Retro-Causality, Orc OR and Free Will, Colonizing Binary Stars and More. Nebula has tons of great content from an ever growing community of creators. Using my Lincoln discount, it's available now for just over two fifty a month, less than the price of the drink or snack you might have been enjoying during the episode. When you sign up at my link, go.nebula.tv slash IsaacArthur, and use my code, IsaacArthur, you not only get access to all the great stuff Nebula offers, like Topopolis, the Eternal River, you also be directly supporting this show. Again, to see SFIA early, ad-free, and with all the exclusive bonus content, go to go.nebula.tv slash IsaacArthur. Welcome to February, and we have plenty more episodes for this month, Continuing on February 8th, when we'll examine homesteading in space, and what might draw pioneers to new colonies and what sorts of life and challenges they'd face. Then on February 8th, Sci-Fi Sunday, we'll ask what might make a civilization quarantine an entire planet and how that might be enforced. On the 15th, we'll explore various technologies made possible through black holes, including galaxy-wrecking weapons we call Quasar Cannons. Then on the 22nd, we'll ask if it is possible to terraform the Moon to have green lands, blue seas, and white clouds just like Earth, and then visit the topic of vacuum trains and other hyperfast transit systems on Sunday, February 25th, before finishing the month on February 29th, as we leap into the topic of life on a colony ark ship carrying people to new worlds that will carry us ahead into this leap year. If you'd like to get alerts when those and other episodes come out, make sure to hit the like, subscribe, and notification buttons. you can also help support the show on Patreon, and if you'd like to donate or help in other ways, you can see those options by visiting our website, IsaacArthur.net. You can also catch all of SFIA's episodes early and ad-free on our streaming service, Nebula, along with hours of bonus content like Topopolis, The Eternal River, at go.nebula.tv slash IsaacArthur. As always, thanks for watching, and have a great week!